Wonderful. Well, look, I think it's fair to say that I'm not a naturally patient individual. You can ask my wife, Kate, she'll testify to this, or I'm sure there's some of you in this room who've got to know me by now, and you probably think, yeah, I don't strike as a particularly patient man. If I was going to put a positive spin on it, I'd say, I'm just an activist, guys. I'm an activist. I like to get things done. You know, I like to just kind of keep things moving, keep the cogs turning. But I was actually watching um, a film with some friends of mine the other day, the first installment, in fact, of the great Peter Jackson trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Great. there, Joe, Joe, On behalf of John, probably about 50% there, whooping for that. And in the, uh, to cut really long, what, what is a really long story, we're talking, what, nine hours of content to in, into, uh, into a shorter work version. Um, there is a scene in this first movie, kind of near the beginning, actually, just before the kind of proper quest takes place. And this secret council is formed, um, and they basically are trying to decide what to do with this powerful, evil ring. And so they get all the wisest people, there's wizards there and elves who have lived 2,000 years, and all of the finest warriors in the land, and they all get together at the secret council, and they decide that the only course of action is to destroy this ring. And before they can say any more, uh, a pretty stubborn hilarious dwarf called Gimli gets up and if you know the film he says what are we waiting for and he goes over to the place where the ring is he tries to hit it with his axe and it doesn't work at all when he gets thrown backwards and his axe uh, shatters into a whole bunch of different pieces I get Gimli folks when I'm in meetings usually the question I'm asking myself is what are we waiting for let's do it now why, why, why are we still in the building which what an amazing vision let's get out on the streets and re-evangelize Nottingham you know th- which can sometimes be a good thing sometimes it's like Gimli with the ring and I end up on my bottom uh, with a metaphorical axe in a few different pieces <laughs> You know, um, God often in my life has had to put me in times of waiting because I won't often take myself there. Do you know that he does that sometimes? He knows your personality. And sometimes he'll put you in places where he knows your temperament won't lead you there naturally. And so he often has put me in times of waiting. And I look back on these times and I am so grateful that he did. I'm so grateful that he made me wait in those moments. And as it happens, God has put Kate and I in a particular time of waiting at the moment, as we await the birth of our first child in October. Oh, okay. Do you guys know I also got ordained a couple of years? No, I'm really joking there. Um, um, and we're in this time of waiting at the moment, and it's this amazing time where you're, where you're sort of aware that there's like nothing we can do really, to make this baby grow or develop. Like, like if we sit there and try really hard and clench our fists, we're, we're not, we're not going to make his eyes any more beautiful. We, you know, it's, it's out of our control, right? We have to let nature take its course. And there's nothing we can do to speed things up. But the, at the same time, it has been the time of real preparation. You know, we've been given lots of parenting advice over the last few months, and I can, I, I can tell you now, no one has said to us, look, guys, don't worry about it. Don't think about the baby. Don't worry about buying stuff. Just, just put it out of your minds, and you'll just figure it out when they arrive. No one said that. For good reason, right? Because although we're in this time of waiting, it's an active waiting. It's a waiting where actually we have to position ourselves for what's to come. And so we've, you know, we've been listening to podcasts and 
praying for this little munchkin. I must admit, I felt a little bit embarrassed when I first started singing into Kate's belly. Now it's my main activity in my spare time. We've, we've got friends who are generously giving us clothes and equipment. I talk about what our values are going to be as a family. In other words, waiting isn't lack of activity, right? Like well, These moments of waiting in our lives are, are active waiting. They're often about posturing ourselves, positioning ourselves for what's to come. In our case, for who's to be born. And time and time again in the scriptures, we see this kind of waiting. You know, all you have to do is open the Psalms and you will see all the time, wait on the Lord. Like you can't miss it, in the, particularly in the early Psalms. It's everywhere. And this, of course, we know this isn't an active waiting. This is a, sorry, this isn't a passive waiting. This is an active thing. When we talk about waiting on the Lord, what we mean by that is that we want to seek God's face. We want to cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit that when he moves, we can discern what he's doing and move with him. The, the waiting, waiting on the Lord is really fundamentally about dependence. We wait on God because what we want to see in our city, what we want to see in our own lives, in our community, is not going to be possible unless he shows up. Waiting is about dependence. It's about realizing Jesus, actually without you, life doesn't have any meaning. He says it, doesn't he, in John 15, without, apart from me, you can do nothing. This vision we have of a church on fire and a city alive, as Joe's already said, this will be a honking failure if God's not real. Like, we haven't left any wiggle room there, folks. This is a vision that only works if God shows up. And so waiting is about being dependent on God, isn't it? We wait for God because we, what, what, we, what we want to see can only happen if he's present. And we're going to start a new series today. Johnny, by the way, if you're joining us for the first time today, firstly, hello. My name's George. Hi. Sorry for what to say that bit. But Johnny finished a series on the book of Daniel last week. And we're going to be in a new series that we're calling Stay Put. And we're going to be sort of camping out in this idea of dependence really for the whole of summer, for the next couple of months. And it, it's been kind of inspired um, in a large part by a dream that some of you may remember that Amy had last autumn. Um, a dream that in a, in a couple of minutes will play um, on the screens. And at the time, um, there were other people in our congregation who were sensing a similar thing. And we just sounded like, look, we feel like this is God speaking. But... As the months have gone on, we've realized that we don't actually believe that this was a dream just for that particular moment, but is as relevant, if not more relevant, for us now as a church community, as restrictions ease, as we come out of lockdown, as we start to get back to some version of normality, we need to be reminded of this. So if you turn your eyes to the screen, I think we've managed to edit Amy's dream together. Um, anyway, dream. So um, I had this dream, and uh, I'm going to read it. It says, there was a, um, a massive tidal wave, and we were driving out of a city. So actually, I'm not going to read it because I can explain it better. Um, so Johnny and I were in a car, um, and we were uh, driving around the city on the side of the city, and around us um, was this massive wave. And it was this uh, sort of wall of water. And at the top of this water was this like rippling of the wave as though it was sort of about to break. And Johnny and I uh, were driving and a bit of the wave broke and it gushed us into the center of the city. 
And, uh, and, and in my dream, it, it was pretty scary. And I remember sort of saying, Jesus, 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 as the wave sort of took us down into the city. Anyway, and then Johnny and I were in, our, in a car with all our family, and we were driving, and there was this sense of um, wanting to get out. <laughs> and so we were trying to find um, different routes. So we were driving, trying to go up this road, and then we were up this road, and it was like, how do we get out of this? Because it was, a, it was you know, fairly intimidating, this, this sense of water that was about to sort of overtake us. And as Johnny and I were uh, driving up uh, one particular road, I felt very clearly in my sleep that sort of woke me up. <clears throat> and the, and the, uh, the voice um, said very clearly, you've got to stay put. Don't run, stay put. And, um, and I sort of woke up um, that next morning, and I was sort of telling Johnny, and I was praying through it. And even as we sort of begin to talk about this next season, there was just a very strong sense that God was saying, there's no, you're not going to find your way out of this. There's no um, strategy. There's no plans that you can make in your own strength. But this is a move um, of God. Um, and actually, it's our job as the church to stay put, to not run, to not hide, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, um, and actually, it's a, in some ways, it's, a, it's a, a preparation as we sort of, all we can do is wait. Right, isn't that good? And, and we, yeah, and our, our conviction is the same, that actually this, this idea of staying put is that it's more important for us than ever in another time of transition, just like that was on the video last year, to keep the main thing the main thing, Right? To make, by, by staying put on the presence of God, we are here to see the church on fire and the city alive. And it's so easy when, when we go from, uh, I think this is true anyway, when we go from periods of crisis and difficulty to periods of comfort again, to unlearn all the lessons that we believe God was teaching us in crisis, right? You know, all of these sermons that we prayed over lockdown about God forming us into being a people that are more dependent upon him, that, are given more, that open more of our hearts to him every day, that are more desperate and hungry for him in prayer, as soon as things change and some kind of normalcy comes back, it's so easy, isn't it, to unlearn all of those lessons. But the things that we learn, the, the, the dependence we learn in crisis is supposed to be carried when we move into times of comfort. The dependence on God that we learn in crisis is supposed to be carried when we move into times of comfort. And I think, coming to our reading, that this is what we see. We see a similar moment in Nehemiah chapter 8. And the context of this story, if you've never heard of Nehemiah before, or the book of Nehemiah, the context of this story, as Johnny sort of mentioned last week, finishing the Daniel series, is that the people of God had tried to do things their way, they turned to idolatry, they had stopped depending on God, and had tried to just figure out life their own way. And this actually led them into exile. That when they, when they did life their way, they actually experienced it as wrath and judgment upon them. And so they're led into exile, and this is where the book of Daniel picks up, in the middle of that exile. And at the end of Daniel, in the book of Nehemiah, the exiles, these, the people of God who have been in captivity in, another, in a foreign land, are beginning to be released again, and they can go back to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is in tatters. The walls are broken down. The people haven't been there. It has no status anymore. There are, there are, there are sort of tribal uh, factions warring against them. They have no security. It is, it is a, a speck of its former glory. And so God calls a builder called Nehemiah, puts it on his heart to go to Jerusalem and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
And then later on, he calls a priest, a, um, a scholar called Ezra, to remind people, these people returning from exile, who, you have to remember, may have gone generations, were beginning to forget the stories of their gods to teach them again about who God is. And so in chapter 8, we find in the, in the book of Nehemiah, most of the book is this building project. That the Jerusalem's in chaos, and then they're building up the walls again, and the, whole, and the people and the community get involved. And by the time you get to chapter 8, this big building project has been finished. The walls have been built back up. The people have even been counted, we see just the chapter earlier. And order, some kind of even kind of economic stability was beginning to emerge again. The walls have been built back, like Jerusalem was beginning to have security again. It was, it was a viable city for the first time in years. It had status in the region again. And it, it's at this exact moment when the walls have been built, when the people are numbered, when Jerusalem is starting to get back on track, it's at this moment that Ezra calls the people to come together and worship. At this moment. And what I want us to see is that this is also the moment, isn't it, when it would be easiest for the people of God to get comfortable again. They've been in a time of crisis and now there's some comfort, they're getting some security again. Jerusalem's been back, built back up, their, their, their home renovation projects are starting to be finished. And isn't it so easy in times of comfort to, to slip back and slowly, bit by bit, we start thinking, actually, God, we've got it from here. Things are built back up, you know, no, actually, I'm happy again now, life's comfortable, I can take the reins now. The desperation that they felt in crisis starts to disappear. I know this is true of my own life. Israel, and this, and this, by the way, was this mistake that they had made time and time and time again. That once God brings Israel, you see this all throughout the scriptures, into a place of comfort, bit by bit they stop depending on God and start depending on themselves. And God becomes like a little bit of seasoning that they just sort of pull out when they want something to go their way. This was the mistake that they had always made. And so Ezra knew, like, unless history is going to repeat itself, unless we learn from these mistakes, we are bound to repeat them. Was it Jesse Potter says, if you, if, you, if you always do what you've always done, you always get what you've always got. Ezra knew this, right? He said, wait a second, I know, I, I know this season. I've read, I've read the law. I've read the stories of our people. It's in these moments where we get complacent. It's in these moments where we take the reins back from you, God, and try and do life our way. And it, and it just ends in suffering and desolation. And, and it breaks your heart, God, because you know the only place that we can find fulfillment and life, the only place that we can know real love, the only place that we can really know rest for our souls, rest for our people, prosperity in its truest sense is in the arms of the Father, is in relationship with living, the living God. And we've seen this as the church. As, as we've been in lockdown, we've seen a similar thing. We've, we've, some of the, um, uh, the ways that perhaps we've colluded with the world have become obvious to us as we've been in a time of crisis. You know, we, we, we've, we've, we, we've had revealed to us all the activity we try and do that isn't rooted on intimacy with God and that we found it empty. We've realized that we've had this tendency to raise up celebrities in the Christian world instead of saints been revealed to us the, the hold that cultural influence and relevance has had on us. And we've realized again, and this has been the grace of lockdown in all of the hardship, in all of the pain, the grace of lockdown is we've realized again that we only have one message, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
The only thing that changes lives is Jesus Christ. And it's almost that in God's grace, he used this time to take us out of our normalcy, to take us out of our comfort, to take us out of our church as usual, to show us, no, 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 the message has always been the same. The only thing we have to offer the world is Jesus. The only one who changes lives is Jesus. Our action, if it's not filled with the presence and the power of God, is vanity. But when our action, when our compassion work, when the things we do as the church are filled with the intimacy, the presence, the power of the gospel, it changes a city and it changes lives. Comfort is not a bad thing in itself, but so often it can be the enemy of dependence. Let me give you an example of this. I, some of you know um, my dad died a long time ago now, but he was ill for a really long time, four or five years. And in his illness, he had the kind of illness where he would go in and out of hospital a lot. So by the time he died, he was probably in hospital six, seven months of the year. And we were always on this roller coaster ride with our dad where he could be absolutely fine, making pies, terrible jokes, one minute. And then that evening, he'd be in hospital fighting for his life. And that's the roller coaster that we were on. And you know what? My prayer life when dad got sick was, I mean, I was in the third heaven, folks. The, the desperation I used to pray with when, when dad was in hospital, God, do something. God, I don't, I, there's, there's no way I can control the situation. All I have is you. All I can do in this moment is look to you and just pray that you will act, that you will move. My prayer life was on fire. And yet, as soon as he was better again, as soon as he returned home, you can bet that I started missing my morning rhythms. I started forgetting about prayer. Things were okay. And I became complacent. You know, the people that moved me so much, I was so, I was so fortunate when I became a Christian in my teens because I had these amazing mentors, these older people. One of them, Dave, was in his 80s, another one, Stuart, in his 90s. And they used to invite me to just come and pray for them. And when I was like 15 years old, and they used to invite, well, we're going to pray for an hour, which to a 15-year-old, when you're a new Christian, you think, pray for an hour? You just want to play Halo on Xbox. Anyway, but I, I sat with these people. But can I tell you the thing that has marked me the most from having those mentors at a young age is that these were people, some of you are in this room, by the way, exactly the same. But these were people who would pray and their dependence on God, it was like it was completely consistent. Come rain, come shine, come good day, come bad day, come sickness, come health. They lived lives of dependence upon God, but they got in the presence of God no matter what life was throwing at them. It so marked me. And so Ezra gets the people together in this moment where they'd be most tempted by comfort and he gets them together and they worship together and he reads the law. And then in verses 14 and 15, I love this. Let me read this bit again. He reintroduces the Feast of Booths. It says this, And they found it written uh, in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the Feast of the Seven Month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Don't you love this? Like, like as if it, you know, we, we, they, they, they got together to worship, but it was also, well, they were one, one step further as they were reading the law, they realized, oh my gosh, we have been neglecting this festival for hundreds and hundreds of years. This, the, the, the Feast of Booths, and, and the Feast of Booths, by the way, it's still celebrated today by the Jewish community. It's, it was supposed to remind the people of Israel of their time in wilderness. Why was that significant? Why, why, why did they have to go camping for a week? 
Well, I think there's lots of different reasons, but the reason that they they were to be reminded of their time in wilderness was that before they were a people who had a land, before they were a people who had a king, before they had judges or an economy or security or buildings, they were a people who simply depended upon God. That was the wilderness. You know, in Scripture, but when, when, when Israel do finally get kings, God's sort of, it's sort of a concession. God, does, God knows it isn't the best thing for them. The core identity of God's people was always supposed to be a people dependent upon him, who, who, who trusted that being in relationship with him was enough, that he would provide everything. And so they got into this feast of booths. Now that your house is ready, folks, now that the kitchen's painted, now that the bedrooms are in place, now that the walls are built, now that your, your home's ready, I want you to go and sleep in a tent. Now that you've got all your ducks in the row, in a row, we're going to go do something where we've got no option but to remind ourselves of dependence upon God. And you know what? This is what I want to say. Verse 17, the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. Listen to this. This is what I want you to hear. And their joy was very great. The thing you notice in Nehemiah chapter 8, we, we, we sometimes think that dependence, we talk about things like comfort and dependence, that, oh, dependence upon God. This is just like, basically, anything I enjoy must be wrong. Anything I like must be wrong. This is basically like giving up all joy in order to be holy. This is one of the most joyful chapters in Scripture. Because we have fullness of joy, independence upon God. This isn't some holy act that we're just trying to do to kind of, to just, you know, I don't know, just, you know, it's only, it must only be the way of God if we're finding it really difficult. This is because only God fulfills us. Only God can give us fullness of joy. Only in dependence upon God do we know life in all of its fullness. Is this not what makes David say, I would rather be a footman in the tents of the Lord than dwell in the mansions of the wicked? I'd rather have nothing and have you, Jesus, than everything in the world without you. There are people in this community who live that out. I want to be more like them, I think. So, we're going to have a little feast of booths this summer. Over the next couple of months, we're going to hang out in this idea of dependence, this series, stay put, what it means for us to be a people of dependence. And we're not literally going to get intense for a week, but we're going to have a sort of metaphorical feast of booths the next couple of months over summer. And if you've been around Trinity, if it's your first time today, or you've been here really any, any longer than five minutes, you'll hear words like dependence and surrender all the time. And you may have been in sermons, you know, it's very likely that hopefully if God was at work, that you, it sort of lit you up and, and, and it resonated with your heart and you thought, yeah, I get it, like, this just makes sense, like dependence upon God, surrender to him. It makes sense. But if you're like me, you sometimes wonder, okay, that was amazing, what an amazing gathering, what an amazing sermon. Maybe you're not thinking that. Um, but what, what does this actually mean in my life? What does it really mean to be dependent beyond the Sunday morning? And that's what we're going to look at this summer. We're going to look at what it means to be dependent in our decisions. 
what it means to be dependent in family, in community, in our relationships. We're going to have a panel with some people talking about prayer in a couple of weeks, what it looks like to be dependent in prayer and worship, what it means to be a people of dependence in every area of our lives. And this is where I want to land, because the bigger our dreams for the city, the bigger our dreams for the church, the greater our need to depend on God. the dreams you have for your life are possible to achieve without God, they are not big enough. The dreams you have for your life are possible to achieve without God, they're not big enough. King David puts it like this, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, What's the very next verse? Wait for the Lord. King David has a mammoth, a earth-sized, an international-sized dream. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And with a dream that big, what is the very next verse? So, wait on the Lord. Only this is possible if you show up, Lord. Only this is possible with your presence. What we don't want you to hear at Trinity, and I'm just going to remind you at the beginning, I told you what an activist I am. What we don't want you to hear at Trinity is that this is a vision of inactivity. We want our activity to flow from, to come out from, to be birthed from intimacy with God, from the presence of God, from the power of God. If God is the vision, it will be impossible to do it in our own strength. So my friends, as we enter into the next couple of months, our own little trinity feast of booths. Waiting on God is not the absence of activity. It is the activity. It is the work that we're called into. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.